Brothers and sisters, we have the promise of the resurrection from the dead direct uh, from our Savior in John's Gospel at uh, the passing of his friend Lazarus and in comforting of Martha and Mary, Lazarus' sister. Uh, Martha cried out, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And who everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. And we see here that the Christ uh, as the resurrection and the life uh, has that life giving power essential to his identity as our savior. When Mary, when Martha rather confesses that that he is uh, the one who gives life and believes that in that she she confesses almost like Peter in Matthew's gospel, right, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. We see this wonderful confession of faith tied to his resurrection and life-giving power. And we are today um, concluding the catechism's teaching through our Apostles' Creed. Uh, The Apostles' Creed was presented, you recall, as a summary of that gospel faith which we must believe to be saved. And here we are coming to the end of the Creed in Lord's Day 22. It's just useful to get a, a big picture. We're in the second part of the catechism on our deliverance. Now, there's a lot more about our deliverance beyond what we believe. Uh, There's the doctrine of justification and the church and the sacraments. So there is more to our salvation than just the creed. Uh, But we are now drawing to the end of that. And we're in the section of the creed on the Holy Spirit. Remember, this whole third part is about the creed and the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. And so this is a part of the sanctification that is promised to saints in Jesus Christ, this part which is a future. And so even though Jesus is the resurrection and the life, we see here the pattern that we've seen throughout the creed and throughout the scriptures, that the Spirit is, is the shyest member of the Trinity. The Spirit shines the light on Jesus. So even though it is Jesus who gives life, Jesus who raises us from the dead, he does so through his Spirit. So here as well, the the Spirit is turning our focus to what Christ has accomplished, to His resurrection, His life, which is our life, uh, through the power of the Spirit working us by faith and connecting us to Him. So these last two lines of our creed point us towards the future. We have confessed things that are true now, uh, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. But here, in one sense, we look to the future. Yes, we have life now. Jesus says those who believe will not die. Our eternal life has begun. But in fullness, it is yet still an object of Christian hope. So I want to look at three elements in particular in our outline, in our bulletin. Um, First of all, the bodily nature of the resurrection, which our catechism emphasizes. Uh, The blessedness of eternal praise, the hope of life eternal, and why uh, these two things are comforts to us. And then finally, I just want to meditate for a moment on 1 Corinthians 15 passage that we read. uh, That our physical bodies, uh, our perishable bodies, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 
So question 57 reminds us that the faith we confess is not a mere intellectual exercise. It's not a matter of passing a test. It is a matter of gospel comfort to us. How does the resurrection of the body comfort you? And there are two key aspects of this comfort. First, the soul is taken immediately after this life to Christ, its head. We probably, many of us, myself included, tend to take this for granted. You die, you go see Jesus, right? But we need to remember that in in the writing of the catechism, in the context of the catechism, in the context of the medieval church, uh, there was... This is actually the direct opposite of what the Christian church had taught for hundreds or perhaps even a thousand years. Luther's reforming teaching was spurred by, uh, as a response in part to Johannes Tetzel, who uh, raised money for the building of St. Peter's in the Germanic area by saying, a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So the idea and the reality, much of Christian piety and spirituality was tied to doubt about the future state of our soul, was tied to fear and uncertainty about potential pain and suffering that awaited us after our earthly pilgrimage. The point here is not to beat up on the Roman Catholic Church. Many Protestants live in the same fear and uncertainty. The point is that we have this uh, tendency in our old man to fall back on our own works, on what we have accomplished. And whenever we cast into doubt the comfort that awaits us after our earthly death, our bodily death, the comfort that we have in Christ, we're teaching a false gospel. That I need to personally appropriate and, and become, be infused with the righteousness of Christ through my cooperative efforts. That my future comfort is based on my resume here on earth. And this was and is today, still, wherever it occurs, a denial of the imputation of Christ's perfect, the phrase that the catechism will use again and again and again, satisfaction, holiness, and righteousness by faith alone. Biblically, the clearest proof text for this, people, uh, Protestants often look to, is Jesus on the cross to the thief, Luke 23. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. His body was probably still hanging on the cross for the rest of that day, perhaps being eaten by the birds. We might add Paul's words to the Philippians, which our catechism points to, in addition to John 11, which uh, Jesus held forth to Martha. When Paul to the Philippians says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's not basing that upon his own holiness, his own faithfulness. He's the chief of all sinners, right? He is confident that his death brings profit to him, gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means faithful, fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. So this is great comfort. The resurrection of the body, first, that our soul immediately goes to Christ, is great comfort. And of course, this uh, is, is a matter of us trusting in what we do not see, right? This is, this is a, a confident hope that is not the visible thing. For if we have sat at the bedside of a dying family member or friend or at a funeral and beheld a dead body, even in 
the front page of a newspaper from a war zone. I was reading a book uh, about South Africa where I'm traveling this next week and seeing some of the political violence of the 1990s. Political leaders gunned down. And looking at that photo from 30 years ago, our, lo- our eyes tell us that there is a gruesome, horrible end to the human life. But our hearts and the word of the gospel tells us that we will be with Christ. And and it's not just a few verses, right? It is the doctrine of justification that gives us this confidence. You could look as another example at Romans chapter 8. And the beginning to the end of Romans chapter 8, the first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no penalty. There's no overdue fee. No library fines we have to pay after we die. There's no condemnation for us. We are in Christ Jesus. And so that whole lovely chapter about the new creation closes and our glorification closes with in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us i am sure that neither death nor life angels rulers things present or things to come nor powers nor height nor depth anything can separate us from the love of god in christ jesus our lord what a great comfort that is the second comforting fact is that the life of the world to come is a bodily one That though we have this blessed hope for our souls, for our consciousness, from the moment where we draw our last breath, there is yet a greater hope. Not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but also my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. Made like Christ. Uh, Job says... With these eyes, I know my Redeemer lives and I will see him. Obviously, at death, the body is not in the same way united to Christ's body. It's not like Christ's glorious body. It remains here behind and decays. Death offers us visible evidence of the power of the curse. And in its own way, it is a useful reminder. Even uh, the cemetery, the graveyard. Uh, last month, I was up at... Uh, our sister church in Pennsylvania, Zeltonwright, for a visit and uh, watch the sun set over the cemetery that's been there for hundreds of years. It's a useful reminder that the wages of sin are death. But God made us, created us living beings by breathing our soul into the material flesh. To be a living being, to be made in His image, is to be body and soul. And we often emphasize the soulish or perhaps the intellectual aspects of the image of God. Perhaps language or praise or thanksgiving or, or, uh, or dominion. And yet there is a bodily component as well. The glory is in the whole of the human person. We are created to reflect God's glory, to enjoy Him forever. And that destruction of that glory, that bodily aspect of that glory is a great sorrow. And in our age, perhaps in all ages, but uh, in our age, we minimize the body, right? Um, Wonderful ministry, I don't know if I should call it a ministry, but the wonderful work of hospice, who cares for elderly people in their homes. And it's a secular organization. It allows people to die at home with their families. But, But one of the things that hospice broadly has, it's not necessarily official, but they have a philosophy, right? That death is just a transition, It's a very secular silver lining. Death is not a thing to fear. It's just a stage in our living. Our dying is a part of our living. So hospice care embraces it. 
And sometimes they go a little too far. It's like the butterfly leaving the chrysalis. Caterpillar entering the chrysalis. Transforming. Leaving the the husk behind, right? We've heard that language before at funerals. I've, I've heard that at very faithful Christian funerals in the last few months. He's free of his body. I know we, many of us feel that way. Many times I wish I were free of my current body. And I'm sure should the Lord give me a decade or two or more, I'll really be ready to be free of this body. But the promise is a new body. The promise is that the new creation, which we already taste and which we already participate in, will come to fruition even within our own flesh. Jesus wept at the grave of his friend and we should weep as well. Death is a horrible undoing of God's created purpose. So it is a great comfort that the body is raised and made like Christ's glorious body. Our catechism draws our attention. And again, you know, my recollection of scripture is is not perfect. But I I forgot that that this language comes from Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So our catechism is drawing on that language of scripture. We will be like Jesus. John in his first epistle expresses a similar sentiment. First John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. There's something glorious awaiting us. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Christ is the first fruits, and his resurrection is the pledge, the promise, the assurance that what the Spirit did in him, in his human flesh, he will also, must also do in us, because we are joined to him, united with him. His humanity is identical to ours. That's Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. If you confess that Christ raised, is raised from the dead, then you're going to be raised from the dead. You can't disconnect those two realities. And the manner is mysterious. But if Christ has been raised, so we must be raised. Now, Paul writes in 1512, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead. Notice, we preach a risen Christ. How can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? So there's doubt in the church. Maybe from seeing dead bodies. Maybe from the delay. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, the general resurrection, then not even Christ has been saved, has been raised. If you deny that you'll be raised, you're denying that Christ is raised. And that's what we preach. That's the gospel. And he concludes this paragraph. In fact, Christ has been raised as the first fruits. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Down in verse 42. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. And so Paul's exploring and plumbing the depths of this mystery of how our body will be our body, but it will be a transformed body. It will be a glorious body. And I know, again, the older, the closer I get to my death, the more precious this teaching of the bodily resurrection becomes. The catechism moves the next question to life everlasting. And one of the comforts here is that it has already begun. Jesus is the life. I am the resurrection of the life. This is true of us now. In him was life, uh, the prologue of the gospel. And the life was the light of men. The life of Christ is ours now. And that's good news. 
John 5, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. We have it. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. You see, that's drawing again on the idea that if you deny the comfort we face, the assurance we face at the coming of our death, you're denying the essential truth of the gospel. And in 1 John, he repeats this idea. We know... He writes in chapter 3 that we have passed out of death into life. It doesn't always feel like that. right? Paul speaks of another perspective on this experience of ours in saying that the old man still lives in us. He's still gradually dying. So in that sense, we have some death in us. We, we carry him, it around with us. But John is emphasizing that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. In other words, sanctification, our holiness, our obedience to God's law, love God and love neighbor, only happens because we who were dead in our sins and trespasses have been brought to life, Ephesians 2. Later in the same epistle, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. It's a hard reminder Brothers and sisters, that as we spend time with friends, loved ones who may not have faith in Christ, it's a hard reminder that they are dying. They are in death. They do not have life. But the gospel teaches us that. And it's important that we acknowledge that, that we've been brought from death to life. We might look around and say, oh man, the Christian life is hard. What's the point? What's the payout? To suffer in this world, to struggle, to not get ahead, to make hard choices. We're alive. (laughs) I'll never forget when my dad had a major heart surgery, they cracked his chest open. And the surgeon came in making rounds after the surgery. My dad was not a a man of faith. And the surgeon came in and, and my dad said, he looked at me and he had this look of like joy and shock on his face. He said, I was dead on that table and now I'm alive. We were dead, and now we're alive. What good news. Jesus prayed that we might have this life. He prayed for us to this end in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's one of John Calvin's favorite verses. You could go off in the direction of doctrine, theology, rational knowledge of God is life, right? Thomas Aquinas maybe went that direction. But Jesus is saying, he's praying to know God is to have life. Because God is life. He is the, I am who I am. He gives life. He's the source of life. He breathed that life into us at our creation. And we possess this life now. 1 Corinthians 2 is the source of of this language of the mystery and the hope and the promise of that coming life. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. What God has prepared for those who love him. God has prepared unspeakable things. For now we know in part and we prophesy in part, Paul says to the Romans, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. 
Philippians 1, 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And one of the great joys and comforts of our resurrected eternal life will be that we will, free of these corrupt, perishable bodies, given restored, consummate bodies, we will be able to worship God sinlessly. Get through a whole service, kids, without any distractions. Imagine that. (laughs) I used to... You're doing much better than I did at your age. I'd just lay down and fall asleep. My mom would take me to Mass. But I was there, right? Our bodies are being trained up to worship God. He's sanctifying us. But our sanctification is going to be perfect. We're going to rejoice and exult in our sinlessness. The kingdom of God, which we long for, which Jesus brought and inaugurated... We can't enter into it in these perishable bodies. And this is a reminder that sometimes we look around for where is the kingdom of God? Can I bring the kingdom here? Do we see it happening in our communities, in our churches? And we see glimpses of it, especially in the life of the church, in our communal life as the body of Christ here on earth. The kingdom of God is, as it were, breaking in by way of anticipation through the Holy Spirit. But Paul lays down a powerful marker in the closing of this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You look in vain if you look around on earth for the kingdom of God. It's in the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, that we will enter in in full into that kingdom. We'll have to be changed. We will all be changed. And the perishable body will put on the imperishable. We can't know what that was like. This is not about going back to paradise, back to the garden. Adam's body was perishable. He sinned and proved that fact. What we have is the new creation body, the second Adam, who obeyed God's command and eats of that tree of life and gives us to eat of it freely as well. And so as as Paul closes this chapter with this beautiful hymn, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He, He gives us impetus to look forward. Therefore, be steadfast. Immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It doesn't make us neglect this world, but it gives us the power and the joy, the confidence to labor to God's glory for the kingdom, even here in the midst of the perishable as we await the imperishable. Let's pray. Merciful God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that Jesus Christ is Lord, a risen Lord, crucified, died, buried, risen, ascended, and coming in glory. And that when he comes, we'll all be changed. We long for that day, dear Lord. Give us heavenly minds, heavenly hearts. Help us to set our minds on things that are above and that we know are coming. In the power of your kingdom through Christ our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.